show ladies and gentlemen this is your host matt labrie you're rocking with us here for episode number 203 on the decoding success podcast now if i said today in this episode we were revealing the secret to live an easier life today and moving forward would you be excited if i asked you would you like to know the secret to live an easier flow like life Would you be excited? I'm sure the answer is yes. That's why you're tuned into this episode. And today our guest is doing exactly that. This gentleman that we're bringing back to the show, meaning he's already been on it, which means he's been super valuable. He's actually going to be revealing the secret as to how you can make today and the days to come in your life easier. So if you're in your 30s right now, your 40s will be a hell of a lot easier. If you're in your 20s, your 30s will be a hell of a lot easier. So with that being said, you're about to get something that can drastically change your life. I'm throwing that out there right now so that you tune in and listen intently when our guest, Gay Hendricks, dives into all of the amazing value he's bringing here. Now, Gay has been a leader in the fields of relationship transformation and body-mind transformation for more than 45 years. He earned his PhD from Stanford in 1974 and became a professor of counseling at the University of Colorado for 21 years. He's written more than 40 books, including two with his wife, bestsellers, which are Five Wishes, The Big Leap, Personally My Favorite, Conscious Loving, and Conscious Loving Ever After. He's also a mystery novelist with a series of five books featuring the Tibetan Buddhist private detective Tenzing Norbu, as well as new mystery series featuring a Victorian-era London detective, Sir Errol Hyde. His latest book, Conscious Luck, reveals eight ways to change your fortunes through the power of intention. Gay has appeared on more than 500 radio and television shows, including Oprah, CNN, CNBC, 48 Hours, and others. His new book, The Genius Zone, which was published this year, 2021, something we're diving into in this episode. It's out now. We're going to be talking about it. Something that you might want to look into. It's an amazing book. And Gay is going to be giving away a lot of the insights within it. Now, I'm going to be posing an ask from you at the end of this episode. And I just want to throw that out there now to kind of paint the picture. There's a lot of value to be depicted here. So without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Gay Hendricks. Gay, welcome back to the show. Super excited to have you back again. As just mentioned, it's been a little bit over a year since we last connected. I know you have amazing things that we need to decode that have taken place in that year. So welcome back. Super excited to have you. Well, thanks so much, Matt. Uh, Yeah, ironically, this was one of the biggest years of our institute. We've been around since the 1980s. And uh, I guess partly because a lot of people were staying home, they were taking our online courses and sales of our books doubled and tripled. So um, I know there's been a lot of pain out there and I want to acknowledge that, but I also want to acknowledge the thirst for wisdom that caused a lot of people to do a lot of learning and growing during this year too. So that's one of the positive side benefits of this. 
See, you just gave me the chills because that's exactly how many of my colleagues, my friends, et cetera, were viewing it. Of course, there was definitely pain. I know people that have lost lives and things of that nature, but what you just alluded to is also a beautiful thing, right? And I, I almost think in a sense, and I know this is a sensitive topic, so I'm trying to tread carefully here, but like we almost need to, or you can correct me if I'm wrong, I would love your perspective on this, but it's almost like, you know, to to take or to be grateful for a sunny day, you need to know a rainy one. Yes. Um, I, I was playing golf recently with a, a fellow who's got about 20 years of sobriety now. And um, he was saying something to the effect that sometimes you have to bottom out to give, give yourself time to slow down and, you know, get some new directions in your life. And Sometimes that happens consciously, and sometimes it just comes out of nowhere like a pandemic that almost causes you to stop in your tracks for a while and reflect deeply on who you are, what you're doing, what your life path is, and, and um, also to open up uh, the compassion that we need to go through a tough time like that. Right. Now, what do you think it was? And obviously, you know, you do amazing work at your institute. I'm just curious, like, is there any research behind why people wanted to dive into the personal development self-help realm as opposed to and i'm sure there were people that did both as opposed to kind of just kicking back uh after working from home opening a six-pack drinking you know watching tv etc like what, what do you think it was that that triggered that was it finally the pause in their life that was like oh shit my cycle's broken yeah i think that may be a big part of it and also i think that you know if you look at the number of people that decided to kind of pause and learn some new things and buy self-help books and take e-courses, you know, that part of the population um, is very successful part of the population, but there's probably more out there that went in the other direction. You know, like I was walking down the street in, uh, in Boulder, Colorado a while back, and uh, uh, I, uh, I heard one fellow say to another fellow, um, you know, he was saying, what are you doing today? And the guy said, well, I'm going to go past the uh, dope store and then take the rest of the day off. And I thought, wait a minute, it's only 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> what's he taking the rest of the day off for? And so I think a lot of people decide to go inward during this past year, kind of like an enforced Zen meditation retreat, you know, that um, a lot of us were in places we'd never been before and had time to be with ourselves in a way that we hadn't been before. So I think that's part of it. Um, I think that um, also there is a general quest and a thirst for knowledge and enlightening practical information these days, like I've never seen before. And I think we just go through waves of that for some reason. And I think one of the big waves uh, was the pandemic that just came through and said, okay, what are you really about? What's your deepest commitment here? What are you really living for? I know you want to keep living, but what do you want to keep living for? Those are questions, you know, that I think we really began to ask ourselves over the past year. And fortunately, I think a lot of the people I work with anyway, and probably you do too, have made the decision to take big leaps forward rather than to go retro and pull back. And so I think that's a really good sign. That's actually what I love so much about working with entrepreneurs. I do a lot of mentoring of, um, of young entrepreneurs in their 30s and 40s. That seems young to me. It may not seem young to you, but uh, uh, a lot of times if you can get things 
straightened out in your 30s, boy, your 40s become a whole lot easier. Decisions you make in that key decade are really key to the next decade because your, your 30s, let me just speak to your audience in your 30s, developmentally in psychology, your 30s are about integration of all the things you need to know to go forward to have success in love, success in money, and overall success in keeping your creativity alive. And those happens big time in your 30s. In your 20s, you're often kind of getting out from under your parents, trying to separate your beliefs, trying to figure out where you belong in this world. And so you experiment a lot. In your 30s, you find your life. And in your 40s, you build your life. That's why it's so crucial for people in their 30s and 40s, well, anytime, but particularly in their 30s and 40s, to be wide open to learning, to get your, your learning uh, apertures wide open so that you can learn from every aspect of life. It's that openness to learning that's going to bring success in your 40s and 50s and beyond. I love that. Now, you know, you bring curiosity to me. This is why I love speaking with you. What does it take to have success in love, in money, et cetera? Well, we give out a wristband to people when they graduate from our trainings here. And on the wristband, it says three simple things, but they have big meanings to them. It says, breathe, move, love. And the reason it says that is because here at our institute, anyway, we teach a lot of natural body-oriented ways of moving through difficult spaces in life. For example, if you know how to breathe correctly, you don't get stuck when you're feeling sad or angry or scared. You feel those things and then you just move on if you know how to breathe. But a lot of people tend to restrict their breathing when they're going through things so they don't ever complete, so they don't finish crying or they don't finish their anxiety. They just keep it in the background all the time by kind of keeping the, the door shut to it. But uh, the reason it says breathe on our wristband is because if you can take three easy breaths when you get stuck or you need, um, you need some kind of uh, transformation, if you can take three easy breaths, it gets the process started because it only takes three easy breaths to change the stress chemistry in your body to begin to melt down the stress chemistry. The reason it says move is because in a way, the secret of life is circulation in movement. It's our blood has to move through us and we have to move our bodies. Do you know, astoundingly enough, when children go into kindergarten, they have access to several thousand different movements in their body. But by the time they graduate high school, they're down to only two or 300. And in the same way, I mean, it's in a way, as you become smarter in school, you become stupider in your body because you're not using it as much as you did when you were four or five years old. And that's a, that has metaphorical, I mean, it's a sad thing in itself that we lose capacity, but, um, Look at all the energy that we've lost as a result of that and all the freedom we've lost. It's the same thing with language. You know, Shakespeare added thousands and thousands of new words to the English language. But by the time people get out of high school, they're down to only using three or 400 words in their lives. And they'll continue that way for the rest of their lives. So that's, that would be like eating one carrot a day of nutrition. You know, you need a lot more stimulation in your life. And if you're down to only a few 
hundred movements and a few hundred words, you're really missing out on the bigness of life itself here. Now you talked about breathing. I'm curious, like what is the proper way to go about that? You know, you said those three, you know, those three proper breaths, is there a certain count or method behind that? Yes. That's a great question. I appreciate it. Almost nobody ever asked me that, Matt. Um, the, the key to it is to keep the breathing, what I call LSD breathing, long, slow, deep. Everybody can remember LSD, long, slow, deep. By long, it should be eight to 10 seconds for the round trip. So four or five seconds in, four or five seconds out. The reason being, if you can slow your breathing down to that pace, that begins to turn down the stress chemistry right, right away. And you'll notice it on the machinery, even within three or four breaths, the meter will start to go down. And so that's a good thing all in itself. But also, if you can keep the breathing long, slow, and deep, you also get the breathing further down in your body, down in your belly, rather than inflating your chest with your breath. Do not inflate your chest with your breath. That's a big prescription. Inflate your belly with your breath because the diaphragm is shaped like this. And when you breathe in, it flattens. And therefore you have to relax your belly to let your organs have some breathing room down there. If you don't breathe all the way in, you get stuck here and you don't ever take that complete in-breath and out-breath. So the diaphragm wants to move through its full range of motion with the breath. And if you're only breathing shallowly, it gets stuck in the middle and you don't feel good all the time. That makes sense. Now you also mentioned how we had so many movements as a kindergarten, as a child in kindergarten, and we lose that by the time we graduate. I'm going to try and tie this in here. You know, how is it that, or, or what can we do to not lose our sense of our little kid. I'm not going to use the word inner child. I'm going to say little kid because I, I look back, like we, we get so serious at a certain point in life. It becomes about how much money do you make? What, what's your job title? Um, interviewing this, that, the other girlfriends, boyfriends, et cetera. Like things get really serious and we, and we lose that sense of like playfulness and creativity and just, um, lack of fear, right? As a child, you, you do so much, uh, you, you jump off of the the jungle gym in the park and all these crazy things. Like, how do we not lose that? It's commitment. You, you got to make a commitment, especially at midlife, when you're getting up into your thirties and about to take, turn 40 or up into your forties, you need to make an actual commitment to keeping your creativity alive. The reason being that especially after 45 or 50 years old, uh, like we say here, every breath you take is either a breath of creativity or a breath of stagnation because you, the pull later on in life is to slow down and not learn as much and stay in your couch, stay on your couch. Uh, I can't remember if it was in the big leap or the new book, the genius zone, where I talked about the woman I met on the park bench in Paris. Uh, uh, anyways, in one of those books, uh, it was a huge conversation for me many years ago. I, the first time I was in Europe, I was sitting on a park bench in Paris. And I was just sipping a little cup of coffee and I'd never been to Europe before. And I was kind of dazzled by this big park I was in in Paris. And an elderly woman in her mid-60s, I would guess, gray hair, very sturdy looking woman, came striding across the park and sat down on the park bench next to me. 
and started, um, we started a conversation and I complimented her on her sneakers because they looked brand new. And she said, yeah, they're my sixth pair I've had on this trip. I've worn out five pairs and this is my sixth pair. And I said, my goodness, where are you coming from? And she said, I'm walking from Arizona across, around the world. Really? And so we had this wonderful conversation when she retired as a school principal, she decided she was going to spend her retirement walking around the world. And I saw she had a nice wedding ring on and everything. I said, is your husband with you? And she said, no, he didn't want to come. And, uh, and she said, I asked him, but he said he didn't want to come because he had his favorite TV shows and things like that. And he didn't want to miss those. And so she had said to him, okay, I'm going to take off. You come visit me every time you want to, every few months. If you want to come meet me somewhere, I'm going to be walking around the world. And so interestingly enough, she'd gone the other way to start with. She walked to California and then she changed her mind and decided to walk back across the U.S. and then took a boat to Europe and was walking across Europe when I met her. So she'd been out on the road about a year and a half and uh, six pairs of sneakers. So what that let me know is it's the choices you make. Are you going to stay on the couch or are you going to walk around the world? Or are you going to find some version of that? I personally, my knees are kind of shot from 20 years of playing competitive squash and bicycling most of my life and that kind of thing. So I'm not going to walk around the world. <laughs> I've only got one good knee left. You know, I've got a titanium knee over here and it's not going to walk around the world. Um, but uh, what, it, what it means really is you got to find that equivalent for yourself, especially later on after midlife, because it's that commitment to creativity that's going to keep you alive. And when I say commitment, I mean a real commitment to it, where you say to yourself and to the universe, okay, I commit to bringing forth more of my genius and my vitality every day of my life. And you make a commitment to that, and then you do things that support that commitment. For me, I had to change everything about my life because I used to be, you know, 50 years ago, I was really overweight and I smoked cigarettes and I was in a terrible relationship and didn't like my job and had a crappy car. And yeah, I could go on like that. But uh, fortunately, I woke up when I was 24 and lost a bunch of weight and changed my life and got into a new relationship. And I've had the last uh, 50 years have been a path of bliss and glory compared to the path I was on at age 24. So um, that's another thing in life. I think that we need to, on a regular basis, really stop and celebrate where we are and what we've done. I mean, most people focus on what they haven't done in life. And, you know, there's always that to focus on. But when I ask people to pause and just celebrate where they are, oftentimes they don't really know what I'm talking about. I spent an hour yesterday on the phone with a, um, a very well-known person um, who you would recognize from uh, many television and movie appearances who had run into a very big stuck place in his life where he had achieved everything, but he didn't feel like he was worth anything. And here's the thing. Every time, particularly every time you hit one of those zero birthdays, like 30, 40, or 50, things change. And for him, this fellow I was talking about, suddenly hitting 60. Wow. You know, even though his face is still all over the world, 
everywhere, suddenly that brings up old issues about, am I really worth anything? So what if I've made a bunch of movies and made a bunch of money? I've made a wreck out of some parts of the rest of my life, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we all have a stack of things like that. But just to be able to celebrate where we are for even 10 seconds is a huge thing because most people don't stop and do that. And that's a big problem. Not only does it make you feel better, but also until you really celebrate where you are, you can't really move forward into the next phase of your life. So it has a very practical value also. It kind of paves the way and smooths the way for the next level of whatever you want to create in your life. Right. Now that makes sense. I'm, I'm just curious, like where's the balance between those two, right? Like being grateful for where you are, what you have, et cetera, what you've accomplished, all of that, and also still having the hunger for more because there is an abundance out there and, and we're entitled to it, you know? Yes. Well, I, I want everyone to welcome in whatever amount of abundance they want to welcome in. You know, like, um, I met a person a while back who, uh, lives up in Canada in a small monastery of maybe a couple of dozen people who were monks. And basically they spend a lot of their time, uh, praying and, you know, living on very small means. And if that's your lifestyle choice, blessings upon you, that's great. I'm not like that. You know, I like to have a spiritual life. I meditate twice a day and have for the past uh, almost 50 years now every day. And so that's to me a deep consultation with spirit every day. And, and at the same time, I want to enjoy all the abundance that I want to enjoy. And right. for me, uh, I used to have four, three houses and a business building, four pieces of property. And then we started realizing real estate was driving us nuts. And, um, so we started, I don't call it downsizing. I call it right sizing. So got rid of one of the business buildings, got rid of one of the houses. Got Now I live in one house that I love and I have a car that I just love. It's a fine car. I've had the same car for many years, but I have no desire to have another one. And that feels good to me. Now that might not feel good to the next person, you know, like, um, the fellow I was talking to yesterday owns houses all over the world. I think that's part of his problem. <laughs> he doesn't enjoy any of them, you know? That's my point was get one and sit there until you love it. You know, that's uh, like Blaise Pascal, the great French philosopher said, all of humankind's problems come from the inability to sit in a room for 10 minutes by ourselves doing nothing. Mm. Mm. Now, last time you were on the show, uh, you define success as having everything you really want and enjoying it. That was Every, Yes. Enjoying everything you have. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That was how you define success. Now I'm just curious, how, how do you know what you really want? And I, I think that ties into the conversation we're having, right? Because uh, I'm getting the chills and I, you know, okay, I just want to throw out there. I'm really grateful for your insights and everything you share. Like I, I really do take this in and I'm grateful to be able to amplify it now. I'm just sitting here and thinking, you know, society has shaped us uh, and, a, and a lot of us haven't broken out of what society has shaped. And I think that's an evolutionary process. It happened when it happens. Maybe it doesn't for some, but oftentimes we, we want things to fit in. We want things to feel accustomed. We, we want things to feel like we're a part of the community, et cetera. So 
how do you know what you really want? You know, if, if it is 10 houses, you, maybe you need to get the 10 houses before you realize you just want one, right? Yes. I, I, I understand completely. Um, how to get, how to understand and feel and determine what you want. Okay. One way people go about it is by experiencing something and then say, okay, that's not what I want. Mm. And that's a perfectly valid way to go about it. Like uh, I've, um, I've never been drunk, for example, because the first time I drank some alcohol back in college, I didn't like the taste of it. <laughs> and also I didn't like what it made other people do. I would see them, you know, drinking their heads off and then throwing up later. That never looked like fun. So sometimes you can just say, okay, I tasted that. I don't want to do that anymore. So that's one way of learning. Another way of learning is to feel something and say, okay, that feels good to me organically good to me. It's not always going to be a uh, foolproof system because sometimes you're ch going to change inside. But one good way of doing it is to try on things you want, kind of like you would try on clothing in a store. So like, hmm, what do I really want? So you might come, okay, I really want a good place to live, a steady, safe place to live. And then that feels good. Just like trying on a jacket. Okay, that feels good. Now let me try on a pair of pants that fits that. And so you kind of assemble it the same way by trying it on in your body. Because your body, interestingly enough, is a better judge of things like that sometimes than your mind is. Because your mind can always make up a, a thousand justifications. I used to work with uh, juvenile delinquents and addicts a lot in the early stage of my career. And particularly drug addicts can always think up a great justification for getting stoned. Yeah. You know, they, uh, I, I've sat with many people. I said, okay, you were clean for six months. What was it that actually made you go out and buy the bag of heroin and take it? What was the thing itself? And surprisingly enough, a lot of people confirmed the thing I talk about in the big leap, the upper limit problem. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to feel good organically. I didn't know it was possible to feel good that organically. It, it, basically, I got scared of my life working. And so I, I needed to go back because another heroin addict once told me something absolutely fascinating. He said, life as a heroin addict is so simple because you wake up in the morning, you want the dough, you do something, you go steal something, you hawk something. Uh, you raid your mother's purse if you're living in the basement or whatever, and you, um, and you go get it, and then you take the drug, and then you feel good for a while. Then you're not feeling good, and you're organized around getting some more. And he said, it made my life so simple. He said, now that I'm straight, I don't know exactly what to do all the time. And in other words, all that freedom, all that freedom of what I'd like to do next, <laughs> that was buried under there. So in a way, we're all like that because uh, I've never personally taken heroin, but things like that are part of my life all the time. You know, like watching too much TV or, you know, getting involved in the neighbor's drama that the neighbor was going through a while back that took up a lot of my attention. And things that um, are indulgences that we use to block our own experience of genius. Mm -hmm. So I say be very, very wary of anything that takes you away from your genius.
because that in itself can become a very powerful addiction. And whatever your addictions are, whatever our addictions are as human beings, what they do is distract us from the real work of life, which is bringing forth your natural organic genius, that which you most love to do and that which makes your biggest contribution to the world around you. That to me is the best use of a human being is when we can contact our unique gifts and our unique things that we are all born with and bring them forth in a way that other people can benefit from. Right. I love that. I love that. Now you mentioned the word genius. Let's talk about the new book because I can ask a million and one questions. I want to make sure we're asking questions about the new book, The Genius Zone, The Breakthrough Process to End Negative Thinking and Live in True Creativity. Now, my first question right out of the gate is, is ending negative thinking actually possible? Very good question. I appreciate that so much. I, it absolutely is. Okay. And it takes some practice. It is possible with the tools I give you in the genius zone to first turn down the volume a lot on your negative thinking. And if you keep practicing the tools I teach in there, particularly the genius move tool that I can talk about later, um, is the payoff for that is you keep rebirthing your genius all the time. And it gives you that state of constant renewal that I think is one of the best feelings in the world, that when you wake up every day, you're saying, wow, today I get to do fill in the blank some more. Like for me, I, I sleep from 10 to four. That's my particular habit. And um, so when I wake up in the morning, like this morning, I woke up at four o'clock right on the button. And I, I never use an alarm clock or anything like that. That just happens to be when I wake up. And so the first thing that jumped into my mind was, wow, this is Wednesday, isn't it? Yep. My mind determined this is Wednesday uh, because I was told um, by my person that books such things that today I have three different talks to give on different podcasts, including yours. And then I do another thing and another thing, and then I go to the gym. And so I was just reviewing in my mind everything I love to do. Everything I love to do is encapsulated in this particular day. Cause also, uh, from five to seven or seven 30 every morning, I write, that's my key little writing time. Uh, my wife, uh, she stays up late. She, she often reads till midnight. So she doesn't wake up till seven 30 or eight. So between five and seven or seven 30 in the morning, it's just me and the cats. It's very quiet. And so I have a lot of good, get a lot of my writing done between five and seven 30 or so. Um, but anyway, um, point I'm making is all day long, I get to do the things I most love to do. Mm. And if you're going to put your attention on one thing to start with out of our conversation, if you're a viewer or listener, that's where I started was by realizing, wow, there are certain things I love to do, but I've got my life set up. So I'm only getting to do those things about 10% of the time. The rest of the time I'm doing stuff that's not in my genius zone, but I've got to do it in order to keep the job going or please my boss or whatever. Um, I was a university professor for 21 years and uh, you have an astonishing amount of freedom as a university professor, but you have to do stuff, you know, like you got to go to meetings and write books and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but in return for that, they give you a lot of freedom. A lot of my colleagues use that freedom to develop habits like 
having a bottle of scotch every night or uh, letting them sails uh, go from 180 up to 300 pounds, like the guy that lived next door to me in my office as a university professor. I watched him gradually balloon over his years there. So a lot of people use their freedom in a way to dig holes for themselves or deeper holes. Whereas I found out early on that I was spending 10% of my time in my genius zone. So I set my intention to get from there to 30%. So that let's say three hours out of the nine hours or so I was working every day, that would be in my genius zone, doing what I most love to do. And Matt, I'll tell you, I didn't get there overnight. It took me years to get there. And I hope it doesn't take any of your listeners and viewers that long, because now you have a book and the tools to do it. I didn't have to, I had to kind of make it up by the seat of my pants. Um, so um, and I'm glad I did, because that gave me the tools to write the big leap and the genius zone. Um, but uh, I hope to speed it up for everybody that's listening, because uh, with the instructions, especially the, the ones in the genius zone, it cuts out years of learning. I mean, literal years of going down wrong tracks and that kind of thing. So you can save yourself a lot of time, just like using your navigation in your car saves you a lot of time than just going from gas station to at gas station saying, where's such and such a place. I used to do that. <laughs> that, that was the old days. You, you asked at gas stations because there weren't any navigational tools like we have today. Uh, so anyway, um, I'm, I'm kind of gradually getting around to uh, kind of hitting you between the eyes with, I think, the most important thing that's in the, the genius zone, which is what I call the genius move, learning how to spot the genius moment and learning how to make the genius move. So. Um, uh, I'd like to dive into that if if we have time. Please, let's let's go for it, hundred percent. Okay, it's been my discovery. See, it's been, it was twelve years since um, the Big Leap came out, and interestingly enough, of all of my books, the Big Leap came out and it was a good bestseller. But every year since, it's become an even better bestseller. So now it sells two or three times the number of books every month that it used to sell when it was brand new which can only mean one thing, word of mouth, because I can guarantee you my publisher hasn't spent a nickel marketing yet. <laughs> At least I haven't seen any evidence for it. So uh, uh, the, re the reason is, I think, because people, if they have something valuable, they want to pass it along. But I've learned lots of other things in the past 12 years since I wrote The Big Leap. So The Big Leap gives you how to get into your genius zone. And the new book shows you how to maintain, how to get there and maintain there by continuously spotting these genius moments and learning how to use this particular tool I call the genius move. Here's a genius moment for you. Like the one I was um, talking to the fellow yesterday about the movie guy. You know, his genius moment was yesterday when he woke up feeling really depressed because it was his birthday and he was another year older and he notices that there's not a heck of a lot of 60, 70 year old movie stars, <laughs> and especially that play leading roles. And so his life is changing big time. And so he was feeling depressed. He was on the front edge of sliding into a depression. And that's what friends are for. Call a friend when you have something like that. And so the thing is, that if you get into a certain type of negative thinking, 
it has a downward spiral quality to it because you're asking your mind the wrong question. You're asking the, you know, he was saying, what's wrong with me? Well, if you ask your mind that question, it'll happily tell you, oh, all day long, what's wrong with you? It will, you know, it'll invite. So step one, get a better question to organize your life. And the question I want to give you is, hmm, how can I express more of my genius every day in such a way that it benefits me and people around me? Or another way to ask the question, hmm, how can I spend more of my time every day doing what I most love to do while making my biggest contribution to people around me, to the world around me, to my family, to my beloved? So to me, life is at its very best when we're in balance doing those two things, when we're opening up to more of what we most love to do and what makes the biggest contribution. So every day you're going to have things which get you stuck, like things you can't figure out. That's a genius moment, believe it or not, because in that moment, one thing I show you in the new book is that in that moment, you're attempting to control something that's not actually controllable. Mm. Do you remember the serenity prayer, which is about, um, give me the strength to show your higher power. God, give me the strength to know the difference between the things I can control and the things I cannot control and the power to let go of the things I cannot control that, that general idea. Well, that actually, that idea first popped up 2000 years ago in the teachings of a man named Epictetus, Epictetus. And about 2000 years ago, roughly lived at the same time as Jesus did, but in a different part of the world over in uh, Rome and Greece. And the first, the first line of his book says this, the secret of happiness is knowing that there are some things you can control and some things you cannot. Mm. And that's exactly the same thing that's in the serenity prayer. And it's in my new book in the following way. If you can learn to spot things in the moment that you're trying to control that are not actually controllable, like for example, trying to control your aging. You're going to be a year older next year, according to the arithmetic of the situation, no matter what you do, you can control the quality of your aging hugely over that next year. That's big. Uh, I started when I was 65, I started going to the gym and working out for the first time. I always swore, I hate, I hated things like, um, uh, going to a gym and watching a bunch of sweaty people pumping away and everything. But I found a way to do it. I, I have a trainer and I go to this little gym that doesn't have anybody else in it, but him and me. And I train rigorously three hours a week. And I've added four or five pounds of muscle to my body over the past 10 years at a time when statistics say that people over 60 are dropping muscle mass at a really rapid rate. Mm. And so I like the idea of going in the opposite direction in that kind of a, a statistic, you know, <laughs> if everybody else is putting on 
fat and dropping muscle. I want to put on muscle and drop fat because right. I found that that's the way to kind of go against the grain a lot of time. You know, if, if, if when I was a kid, you know, if, if um, everybody else was drinking beer and throwing up at a Dempsey dumpster, I was going to not drink beer and not throw up in a Dempsey dumpster. So I, I get a lot of my learning by watching what people do and say, okay, I don't want to do it that way. Uh, but this whole other thing we've got to learn how to do is change ourselves through the power of commitment. And that's the reason, like if you look through the Big Leap or if you look through the new book, certainly you'll see that I put a lot of attention on showing you how to make a commitment to bringing forth your genius that actually makes it work. Because if you make kind of a half-baked commitment, I was going to use another word but for half, but uh, half-baked commitment, if you don't fully get off the bench and get into the field, if you don't fully commit, what happens is you kind of drag around the baggage of that lack of commitment everywhere you go. Believe it or not, I've had, you probably know, uh, my wife and I do a lot of relationship work. Half of yep. our trainings are on, uh, based on our book, Conscious Loving and other relationship books we've uh, written. And I have couples that come in here that have may been may maybe married 30 years, but one or the other of them has never fully made a heartfelt commitment to the other person. It's just amazing to me. And, and that has, you know, if you're not committed to the other person, you can find a million faults with them. Mm. But the moment you become committed to that person, then you're on their side, you're on their team and, and you're for them. That's a key thing about a commitment that you become for the thing. You know, if, if, like when I was a kid, I had just a living commitment to the Brooklyn Dodgers. The lead, the Brooklyn Dodgers was the only baseball team and it broke my heart when they left for California. You know, I, I remember saying to my childhood baseball buddy, Dewey Deloach, he was the catcher to most of my pitch, pitching in the backyard. And I said, can you just move a baseball team? I mean, they're the Brooklyn Dodgers, you know, what are they going to do with Ebbets Field, you know? And, uh, and then that really broke my heart when they turned Ebbets Field into uh, apartments. I don't know, what part of the world are you from, Matt? I'm in New York. I'm in Queens. You're in Queens. Okay. Well, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, are you a Yankee or Mets person? So you're going to, you, you might have a reaction to this, but I'm a diehard Atlanta Braves fan, but I'm born and raised in Queens in New York. Okay. Well, I used to be a Braves fan because that was the only thing I could get on cable. Uh, that was, <laughs> I don't know if you remember that stage of the cable. PBS, yep, yep. Yep. You got Cubs or you got the Braves. Yep. <laughs> that was it. And uh, so I like WGN in Chicago because I always get to see the Braves and of course, Ted Turner's that work in um, uh, Atlanta. I loved the Braves during their golden era where they uh, had Smoltz, Glavin, and um, Addix. Greg wow. Addix, man, what movement he got on the ball. And he stayed with it for years too, you know, that. Uh, That's why I fell in love with them. I mean, I, I was a pitcher myself. I'm 28 now, I'm born in 92. So I always get made fun of because my, my dad's, we're actually going to the game tonight. The, the Braves are in town. So we're going to the game tonight, me and my dad. My dad's a Mets fan. And, uh, you know, everyone asks me, how are you a Braves fan? Well, I said, why would I root for the team that was losing? You know, like, well, you know, when, when you're watching Smoltz come in and just lock down a game, Maddox, Glavin, even Mike Hampton, and 
all these other amazing individuals that were part of that organization. It was incredible to see, you know. And going back a little further, I don't know if you arrived in time to ever see uh, the Necro brothers, Phil and Joe Necro. They were famous knuckleballers. Yep, yep, yep. I know who they are, yeah. Yeah. There's a, actually at the Atlanta Stadium, you probably know, there's a statue of uh, of Necro, uh, Phil Necro called the Knuckler. Yeah. Well, like- we've got off on quite a tangent here. All you have to do is get me off on the subject of baseball <laughs> and I'm here all day. Uh, baseball's in my blood, by the way. I grew up in a baseball park. Uh, my granddad uh, ran the local baseball park in the town I grew up in, which was also a spring training site in Florida um, during my younger years. So I got to see awesome baseball players uh, when I was a kid. I got to see Pete Rose when he was 18 years old playing for the Tampa Reds in Class D baseball. That's amazing. That is, I'm sure we could talk baseball for, for a very long time. That's why they have editors for these things is to cut that. <laughs> no, no need to, no need to. It's organic conversation. I love it. But to, to bring it back to the book, uh, I want to make sure that we're promoting this book. We're getting the word out there. As I mentioned the last time, like I said, we released an episode with you June 19, 2020. Uh, the big leap changed my life. And I was glad we were able to promote that, get, you know, amplified, not even promote it, but amplified. It really needed to be amplified. It's incredible. I want to make sure we're doing the same thing here with the genius zone. So I'm curious if, an individual can only take away one thing from this book. What would you want it to be? It would be that you have authentic genius inside you. And you get there by inquiring into two big things. What do I most love to do? And how could I do that in a way that had the biggest benefit for other people? To me, if you get busy answering those two questions and getting that stuff on the line, your life turns into a miracle and I'm living testimony to it. Uh, that miracle created my life. And um, also I wanted to hearken back because I still had one other thing to say about a point you made earlier Yeah, uh, that's also in the new book, but uh, it's how do you figure out what you want? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the best ways to figure out what you want is by asking yourself the question about what do I most love to do? Like for me, One aspect of my genius is I can explain really complicated things in a really simple way that makes it practical to use in your daily life. And that's my particular specialty. And I'm getting to do that right this minute. And I'm going to do that all day long in one form or the other. And that's my life at its best because I know it's going to make a big contribution to other people's lives. So any moment that you can contact down in there and find out what do I really love to do? For example, I love to write. Not everybody likes to write. Some people, it's like pulling teeth. Um, I've worked with university colleagues that were trying to write their book for 30 years and then they retired, never got it done. And so the, the key task for all of us in life is to really open up and express the best of what we have in the world to bring that forth. And there's no better way than finding out what it is you most love to do and then translating that to something that you can do that makes a contribution to other people. Right. I love that. I love that. Gay, listen, a million and one questions I can ask you here. You really piqued my interest. You mentioned that you have a lot of couples. Um, You do a lot of couple work, relationship work. I'm just curious, and this has been a topic of conversation for, for quite some time on the show, and I always love the perspectives of all the individuals we have on here, what do you feel like is 
the number one thing that you encounter that leads to an unsuccessful relationship? Was it what you mentioned in regard to the lack of commitment from one partner? Um, I think there are three big things, Matt. One is, um, is there honesty in the relationship? Okay. Can both people speak honestly to each other or do, or, or do they hide things? Uh, so I would say that two out of every three couples that come here are here because there was something that didn't get communicated way back and it kind of got pushed under the rug and never got handled and it keeps bursting out until you get down to whatever the thing was. Uh, and sometimes uh, it can be extreme, you know, like I remember one couple that the thing that had happened that she hadn't said anything with, about was seven years before she'd had a one night stand with his best friend and ne never told him about it. Of course, then that made a ramification about his relationship with the best friend. And so things had been off center for seven years. And during that time, one of the other things is she had become non-orgasmic, had uh, couldn't have um, a satisfying sexual experience with him. Why? Because of that withhold, that big blob of uncommunicated truth that's sitting there between them. It's hard to think of another person as sexy and interesting to make love to if you're lying to them all the time. But anyway, uh, that got outed here and it caused a big uproar, but then the the people integrated it and they got back and, you know, now they're, you know, years later, everything is thriving again. But how many people don't get that stuff out of it? You know, <laughs> keep it swept under the rug. And so that's one thing. The second thing is blame and criticism. Blame and criticism are addictions. They're not useful. They're as useful as a bag of heroin in a relationship. Um, they're that destructive because blame and criticism are a habit that gets escalated more and more. And they're unpleasant enough by themselves, but they also block any sense of appreciation. And when people leave relationships, they often do studies where they ask them, why did you leave this relationship? And many will say, I couldn't stand the blame and criticism. And I never felt appreciated. Another thing they often say is he or she would never tell me what was really going on. I was always saying, is everything okay? And they were saying, fine, but I knew there was something off. Well, those kinds of things are easy to fix, but we don't get any training in how to deal with those things. You know, like how much training did you have in elementary, high school, or college about how to communicate a difficult issue in a relationship? None. None. I had exactly zero training until I got to graduate school. That to me is criminal malpractice because in the first grade, I've actually seen schools in which first graders were taught communication skills. And it's so great to see a, a first grader sitting there listening to someone else, kind of like a therapist might listen, like, oh, tell me more about that, <laughs> you know, instead of criticizing the person. So blame and criticism big problem in relationships. The third big problem is I already mentioned the problem of burying your creativity. Mm. You know, like, uh, I have people all the time that say me, tell me that 
you know, I, I've, I used to feel so creative and then I got married and then had kids and now, you know, I never actually sit down and paint a painting or write a poem or compose something on the piano or anything like that. Uh, so gradually creativity gets buried and that's a very unfortunate thing. Uh, so those three things, telling the truth, taking responsibility instead of blaming the other person and commitment to your creativity. Those are big things that if you do them right, your relationship will thrive. Katie and I have been doing those things for 40 years now, and uh, we're about to have our 40th wedding anniversary in October. So, uh, and uh, I think she's uh, more beautiful and sexier 40 years later than she was when I first saw her. And I, then I thought she was the most gorgeous woman I'd ever seen in my life. So uh, if you work it right, you can be feeling that way uh, 40 years later. That's amazing. Uh, when's your anniversary? October what? Well, we're going to celebrate it October 30th this year uh, because it happens to be a, a, a night where we easily get entertainment and things like that. That's a beautiful thing. Congratulations. God bless in that regard. Now, Gay, I know I need to get you out of here in just a few minutes. One last question for you. If you decided today that you wanted to just go golf the rest of your life, never do another podcast, never write another book, just totally shift out of what you're currently doing. And if you could only give one piece of advice for the rest of that, you know, your, your life, your time being here, what would that be? Mm, great question. Let me just tune into that for a second. Mm. It would be to love as much as you can from wherever you are, particularly loving yourself as much as you can from wherever you are. Mm. That's a key thing that almost all of us forget until we've kind of gotten ourselves stuck way down there. But I've seen that the miracle a million times where one second of just loving yourself as you are begins to spring free you from whatever you're stuck on. I love that. Okay. Thank you again for the opportunity to amplify this message to our amazing audience of listeners. I appreciate you more than you know it. Very grateful for you. I'm going to make sure that all socials, websites, where people can get the book are in the show notes of this episode. But thank you again, brother, for hopping on here. I appreciate it. Well, great. Thank you. It's good to talk with you again. And uh, I hope you have a great time going to your, going to a major league game with your dad is one of the best things on earth. Uh, I went with my granddad. I never got to go with my dad because he died while my mother was pregnant with me. It was the end of the first or second world war. And uh, when I was born... And, um, but, uh, I spent many, many, many happy hours at the, uh, baseball park with my granddad when I was growing up and, uh, there's hardly anything better. I love it. I love, we'll have to connect about baseball. We'll, we, we have to connect about baseball. I'm sure we could share some amazing stuff. Well, it depends on, I'm going to be giving a speech at the Plaza hotel on October 1st. So, uh, depending who's in the world series of the playoffs, uh, uh, we'll see. I kind of. Well, I'm not going to go out and say it. I, I said I wouldn't bet on the Mets, but uh, forget that, you know, <laughs> since I'm speaking to a New Yorker. <laughs> what do you think is going to be in the World Series? Give me the prediction. Well, I believe it's going to be the Red Sox and the L.A. Dodgers. Okay. Um, and I have all sorts of good reasons for that, which would take me a half an hour to explain. But uh, <laughs> uh, And I have got good reasons for a lot of the other teams why they won't be there. but. Uh, I'm going to keep my mouth shut here and go work out at the gym. Give me one more prediction before you leave. Will the Braves make the playoffs? Yes. You think so? Yes. I, lo I love it. Listen, that's a perfect note to end on. 
<laughs> yeah, keep your eye on those guys because, uh, you know, they've had their struggles. But uh, these next couple of months, um, I think it's going to make a lot of difference for them. I, I love to hear that. Gabe. thank you again for hopping on here. I appreciate it. <laughs> Blessings to you. There you have it. Episode number 203 with our friend Gay Hendricks. As mentioned earlier in this episode, I said that I'm going to put an ask out there. If you share this episode and show us that you've shared it, we are going to be doing something for you, whether that is send you a gift card, send you a coffee, buy you a coffee, send you one of our limited edition shirts. We're going to be doing something special for you. So again, if you share this episode, whether it's in your group chats, whether it's on social media, tag us, whatever, make sure that we receive it and we will make sure to bless you. One hand washes the other. That is a very symbiotic value type of exchange. So we just wanted to throw that out there first and foremost. Secondly, make sure you're connecting with Gay if you haven't done so already. As always, all of our guests have their contact information in the show notes of these episodes. Until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.